This is Mike Levitt, a co-founder of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible health care for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of health care. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to the Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Weaver and Daniel Chipping of the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. The ACLC is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating industry readiness for success in value. With its competency-based framework for health value, the ACLC is working with healthcare organizations all over the country to create the workforce of tomorrow. Come join Eric and Daniel as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to Value listeners, this week we have Dr. Zev Newworth, Chief Clinical Executive Officer for Care Transformation and Strategic Services at Atrium Health, one of the largest leading nonprofit hospital systems in the country. Dr. Newworth has over a dozen years of experience in care design, quality improvement, innovation. You also may know Zev Newworth from his bi-weekly healthcare podcast entitled Creating a New Healthcare And this is a podcast that is named one of the most popular podcasts in 2018. I think it won the Healthcare Podcast of the Year. We're big fans of Zev and the work that he's doing there here at the Race to Value. And Zev wrote a great book called Reframing Healthcare, a Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change. So Daniel, I just think this guest, this topic, I mean, we're talking with Dr. Zev Newworth about human-centered care delivery. I'm just really excited about this episode, and I think our listeners are in for a treat. Eric, I couldn't agree more. Dr. Newearth is an incredible guest, and I'm so privileged that we could have him on our show. Let's go ahead and hand it over to Dr. Zev Newearth as he joins us this week in the Race to Value. Well, Zev, I can't even begin to tell you how excited we are to have you on the Race to Value. Your book, Reframing Healthcare, a Roadmap for Creating Disruptive Change, has really been an inspiration for us here at the Accountable Care Learning Collaborative. Thanks so much for being our guest this week on the podcast. It's my pleasure, and I've been looking forward to speaking to you. Thank you. Well, Zev, let's begin our conversation today talking about your mission to reframe healthcare. In the introduction to your outstanding book, you state, quote unquote, all of us deserve access to affordable, high quality, customer oriented healthcare. Yet, despite all the world class expertise, technology, cutting edge research, well intentioned efforts, and profound resources with our healthcare system, we continue to experience healthcare outcomes that fall far short of what we would like to believe. But we have the ability right now to unleash the tremendous value that's currently locked up in our healthcare system and deliver the type of healthcare we all expect and deserve. And that last sentence, I think, really encapsulates the heart of what you're doing as a courageous leader for value-based care. I mean, you provide the industry hope and inspiration. And for those seeking answers, you give them a, a sense of optimism and a way to elevate their thinking and finding solutions. But what I like most about your work, Zev, is that you also lead with this moral imperative to fix healthcare, which I think all too often gets lost when we focus so intently on the healthcare cost part of the equation and don't think as much about the human side of things. So, Zev, as we begin our discussion today, we're going to talk a lot about your ideas around creating disruptive change in healthcare. However, before we do that, I'd like to ask you about a catalytic event that happened in your personal life that influenced your work as a, as a crusader for industry transformation. As I understand from you know reading your book about five years ago, 
Uh, you lost your mother after a long, painful post-operative course following a completely elective surgery for her arth arthritic hip. And your mother was one of the thousands of people who unfortunately die avoidable, preventable deaths e each year in the healthcare system. I mean, she tragically died from a C. diff bacterial infection that led to septicemia, which is a hospital-acquired infection that could have been prevented had the providers and staff caring for her had simply washed their hands and caring in, in between caring for patients. So as we begin our conversation today, I wanted to ask you if you could speak a little bit about how this event maybe served as one of the final straws for you in leading a national movement to humanize healthcare. And given the many years you've spent in healthcare process improvement, quality, safety, and patient-centered care redesign, how do you think we should shift our orientation of care delivery towards a more humanized and patient-centered model so that we can truly reframe healthcare once we reach stabilization in this post-COVID America? I'd like to just take a step back and sort of frame up my perspective and sort of how I see myself situated in this larger community of healthcare delivery. And, and then I'll, I'll definitely share with you the, the sort of catalytic events as you talked about in some professional and and some very, very personal, as you were alluding to. So let me just say this, first of all, and I, I say this every time I, I speak, either whether I'm interviewing or, or presenting or uh, being interviewed, is that I, I have profound respect for the individuals who are delivering healthcare every single day or those that are supporting uh, those that are directly delivering healthcare. Right now at this moment, my wife is in the hospital as an infectious disease doctor on call taking care of patients. She's one of the smartest people I've ever met and unbelievably passionate about patient care and devoted to it and has been in it for decades. And my brother's in the hospital as an interventional radiologist. Most of my friends, close friends are in the hospital right now or in clinics uh, or in ORs taking care. Some of them are nurses and some of them are PAs and some of them quite honestly are, are tech and therapists of one sort or another, and some of them are ambulance drivers. And so I, I just take my hat off because I know firsthand how challenging that work is intellectually, physically, and uh, emotionally, and especially now in the post-pandemic era, or we're really not in, in the post-pandemic era, of course, with the Delta variant. But you know, the, these folks, I was just talking to a pulmonologist ICU doctor yesterday, who's a good friend of mine here locally, and just the, the amount of work he has been doing and his colleagues over the past month, it's just awesome. It's mind boggling. I can't even begin to describe it. I couldn't do it. So I just want to recognize that my role is, I do have a day job. And as you were saying, I've been spending years, I've been in healthcare for 30 years, hard to believe. As an internal medicine doctor, originally I practiced over 20 years, uh, pretty intensely in different locations as an internal medicine general doctor, uh, but then started to shift into care redesign and uh, human-centered care redesign and began to get into innovation and process improvement and quality improvement. And so that is my day job and has been for pretty much for 15 years, really day in, day out, trying to make healthcare better in small ways and in big ways. But truthfully, my role, you know, with the book and the podcast I have and, and the presentations I do and speaking to boards around the country and, and clinical groups, and I see my role as really appreciating, first of all, seeking out people who are really making a difference in healthcare. Uh, and there is a difference between doing a great job at healthcare, improving healthcare, and then transforming healthcare. And so my avocation, my passion, um, that inflection in my career you were talking about really is focused on seeking out those that are already making the changes and doing it successfully. So there's nothing I talk about that is theoretical, nothing futuristic. Some people have asked me to come and give future talks, and I don't do that because I just, I wouldn't even know where to begin. What I do know how to do is understand what's actually already happening. Uh, and so many people in healthcare and around healthcare are so heads down in the work of, of daily healthcare. Fortunately, and for whatever reason, I've been able to lift my head up and see what is going on and see the changes and discern them and really appreciate those that are making significant changes and then really just be uh, an echo chamber for that and and also paint the picture and put it together so that others can see it. And so we, we begin to have a path of hope 
for really healthcare delivery, what it can and should be. And it doesn't have to wait five or 10 years or 15 years, like most people say. It could happen. In fact, not only could it happen tomorrow, it already is happening today and yesterday. And so my plea to the leaders across the country is you all are in a position, whether you're in the C-suite or, or reporting to the C-suite or your managers or your entrepreneurs or your policymakers or your funders and payers, you actually are, you have the ability to start to really be, you know, put your shoulder to that flywheel and make it work. And uh, we're not starting from scratch. And so it's just a matter of, of really growing that community. And I'm part of it. And I, I was just saying to someone last week that I just the most amazing thing, the best thing that's ever happened to me in my career is I've become part of this community. I'm, I'm a small, small part of it. There are great, great leaders. And what I do is just, I, I find those people. I try to talk to them. I try to learn from them and I try to share what they're doing. And so that's, that's really simply how I see who I am and what I do. And if I could contribute to that in my day job in care delivery, then even more to the point. And I'm becoming more and more, to be just quite honest with you, I'm becoming more and more interested in that and really joining and being part of those that are actually transforming healthcare. And it is happening in my institution where I work daily at Atrium Health. It's happening across the country. It's happening in startups across the country. I mean, I have to tell you, just every single day, including yesterday and even today, I'm having conversations with folks, but it is almost science fiction what is already happening. It's not happening tomorrow, it's actually happening today. And, and it's just a matter of aligning payment to it. And so um, anyway, you, you can hear the enthusiasm. In my younger days, I think I, I had a bit more anger and frustration, and I think I could point fingers at people, but I have to admit, I'm, I don't feel quite that way anymore. I really feel like most people, the vast, vast majority are in this for the right reason. It is really, really hard to buck a system and it's hard to change a system. And so the problem we have is not about people and it's not about individuals in healthcare delivery. It's not about the organizations. I know people like to point fingers. It's not about any of those things. It really is about, are we collectively ready to have the courage to change a system in fundamental ways? Uh, the answer is yes or no. There's no in between. You either are with the change or you're against the change. And there I'm pretty clear. But it is a different problem than saying I'm going to change my organization alone. It's really about collectively how do we do it together? You know, and the truth is, again, there are people that are doing it. There are people that are already putting themselves on the line, putting their careers on the line, putting their health on the line to actually transform healthcare. The question is, do the rest of us want to put our shoulder to that stone or not? So y'all asked me a question about sort of the catalyst and I have, you know, again, being really, really honest about this, I have some hesitation about that because the truth is that there were a couple of things that happened about six years ago, five, six years ago that, that were sort of that, that straw that sort of broke the camel's back and, and really inflected me. There's no question about it. And I'll share those. I wrote about them and I'll share them with you. But the truth is that the catalyst really began over 25 years ago when I was a young physician, just newly minted, newly trained and began to, I took a couple of years off. I was going to do a fellowship in cardiology and I decided to work for a couple of years as a internal medicine doctor actually. And I began to see the actual practice of medicine outside of uh, the hospital uh, rounds that we had been doing. And I was quite honestly appalled. I was, I was appalled. I was uh, shocked. There was moral outrage at just on my part on just about every aspect of healthcare. And I thought, oh my God, this must just be the organization I'm working for. And I began to explore that and quickly discovered that, in fact, uh, the situation was ubiquitous everywhere in healthcare. It was being delivered in a way that I thought was just inhumane. And again, not the people. The people were trying their best, but they were in a system that really was not allowing them, not enabling them, not supporting them to be humanistic. And in order to do so, they were really having to bend over backwards and particularly nurses, as I thought, I think about nurses every single day and the work they do and, and nurses aides and the techs around, but, but including the, the physicians as well. So this notion of uh, kind of going along and, and then just something happening five or six year go, years ago isn't, isn't exactly the case. It's, it's every single year in my entire career, the thematic has been 
not just practicing medicine. It, it really was practicing, but also trying to improve it and then realizing that finally, I think the catalytic sort of inflection and understanding was that you cannot improve this system. You actually have to uh, reframe it. And of course, I, you know, that's a word, but there are people who have been doing that and there are steps to doing that. And it's, it's more than one step. And so, so I think that the, the, the catalyst was really that led to that understanding that it has to be, it has to be really completely changed. And this piecemeal every year, a little bit of patchwork and band-aids and a new technology, a new fad, whether it was Six Sigma or Lean or electronic medical records, or now it's digital health and artificial intelligence. They're all phenomenal. And, and I just am in awe and love, and I believe that they're going to be great enablers. But the truth is, in and of themselves, they will not transform healthcare. It requires an intentional reframing. And so six years ago, I did. Uh, my mother went into the hospital for an elective total hip replacement. This was her second one on the other hip and um, pretty healthy, 70 some odd years old, early 70s. And like I said, she had gone through the first one really well. The second one, unfortunately, there were a series of post-operative issues that occurred. Again, I think I could blame a lot of folks in the system, a lot of missteps. And, you know, in the end, she died uh, from an infection that is uh, really totally preventable. It's uh, what we call a hack and HAC, a hospital-acquired condition or hospital-acquired infection. It is on, on just about every hospital's list of uh, quality and safety metrics. And this particular infection, C. difficile, it's almost sort of historic, antiquated to even talk about this notion. This goes back now to the 1800s where we discovered that bacteria were the cause of infections and, and sepsis and death and mortality in, in hospitals. And what they required was cleaning of hands and clean clothes and clean surfaces. And this was 150 years ago that we discovered this and have known this. And yet today, we can't figure out how to wash our hands in hospitals and keep the services clean enough so that people don't get this avoidable infection. It's as you were saying before, this is not an isolated incidence. There are hospital acquired conditions. There the estimates are somewhere between 200 to 400,000 people in this country die every year, completely preventable, avoidable deaths in our hospitals. But there were other errors that were involved as well. And so here I was, and I went through this multi-week process with my mother, my siblings, two of whom are actually in healthcare. Collectively, I think we have close to 50 years or more combined in healthcare experience. And so three of the four siblings, three of the four children my mother have are in healthcare, two of whom actually are involved in, in redesigning healthcare and transforming healthcare. And so here we are visiting my mother in the hospital, going up to New Jersey, and we couldn't prevent her death. And you know, after she died, I just remember just for weeks and weeks, and quite honestly, the thoughts don't stop and the feelings don't end. Just couldn't understand how this could happen on on, the, on a personal level, given the situation. And again, magnifying that to the fact that this happens to 400,000, 400,000 families a year in this country, if not more. And so, so that really kind of shook me to the core. I had another very kind of professional slash personal incident about a year, year and a half later after that, which really kind of tore off the scab, if you will. A close friend, a colleague that I worked with for years here in my day job and who was in fact my personal primary care doctor, one of the smartest, best, brightest, nicest physicians, people you will have ever met, super, super smart and creative, saw patients and on Friday afternoon after a week of seeing patients in his office, he got into his car, drove to a, ne a nearby park, pulled out a handgun and shot himself in the head. No one in his office who had worked with him for years, decades actually saw this coming. And I remember getting the phone call early Saturday morning. I was sitting, in fact, in this very chair in my home office. And another internal medicine doctor friend called me up and said, did you hear? And uh, when he told me, I just literally put the phone down and stared at the ground for I don't know how long. I was, I was just frozen. And this is the first time a close, close friend, colleague has committed suicide. And the thoughts that go through your mind are interesting and different. Um, and again, they, they don't stop. I just remember after whatever period of time it was, as I was sitting there looking at, the, at my feet and, and the ground below my desk, I just started to say something to myself. And I said, this is going to happen to you. And I just started to over and over again, this isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen to you. 
And I just said to myself, I am not going to go down like that. I'm going to go down fighting against a system that just strips and denudes the humanity out of almost every single person who tries to, to do the best they can to help their fellow man. And I thought, that's it. I am going to fight and I'm going to speak up. I'm going to put aside my personal, I'm not a, an extrovert, I'm an introvert. And I just said, whatever professional peril it puts me at, compromise, I didn't care. I'm going to start to talk about this issue. And so I started to do exactly that. That was the inflection. That was the, the point where it just, well, there was one other, let me just say this, which was a little bit less serious and less personal, but nonetheless was, was probably the third part of the catalytic event about five, six years ago, where I was sitting in a meeting with other physician leaders, white coats and other administrators, suits as we call them. So the suits and white coats and friends and colleagues I've been working with for years. And we were having a meeting about access and it's just patients wait for days, weeks, months, sometimes to see doctors and it's inconvenient, et cetera. And we were talking about access and we were rehashing this with solutions. You know, it was literally, I was sitting there and it was just almost like a deja vu moment where I was like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, that solutions or those solutions you just mentioned, we had the same exact conversation, literally the same exact conversation, same suits and same white coats, like three or four years ago, literally in this conference room, it hasn't changed. Fundamentally, the, the, the discussion has not changed. We're still swimming in that same fishbowl. And I almost got sick to my stomach. I was ill. It was like, I call it now the Groundhog Day moment, you know, from that movie with Dan Aykroyd, but it wasn't funny. And as I'm sitting there, I thought to myself, oh my God, I had the same exact conversation 10 years ago in Boston with a different group of, of white coats and suits. And it's just like, I'm done with this game. You know, I can't do this anymore. I, I have to actually peel back and really rethink this. And so those incidents really started me to talk to people in a different way, to start to ask questions in a different way, to look for different people that were not, you know, and there's nothing wrong, obviously, with improving healthcare. In fact, it's critical that we, we continue to improve every single day, small changes. I get it. I studied, you know, Lean Toyota system for in Six Sigma for years and practiced it for years. Big believer in that a big believer in innovation and, and making leaps in effectiveness. But fundamentally, if we don't start to change the system, we'll be playing this game uh, long after I retire. And, and the technology, again, people have pointed to technology for decades since I started. And you know, every couple of years, a new technology comes and it goes. And it is an enabler, no question about it, but it is not the transformative thing. The transformative thing is actually a new orientation, which was the first step of the Reframe Roadmap. And so what I did is I started to interview people, really figure out what they were doing to make these fundamental changes. I started to realize there was a, a path, a certain number of steps they were all kind of consistently taking. And so I started to talk about it. I would literally talk to anyone who would listen. It didn't matter who you were. If you were willing to invite me to speak about it, I would speak about it. And then that led to me wanting to write about it. People asked if, if I had any written material they could take back to their colleagues. I didn't started to write what I thought were some articles and those articles turned into chapters and the chapter turned into a book on reframing healthcare. And so that's kind of the catalytic events. That's sort of what happened. Zev, wow. I just want to take a minute and just recognize that you've really grounded this conversation and, and appreciate you sharing that and being vulnerable with us. And uh, it's sad that you and others have gone through these experiences. And I think, you know, I listened to you talk about your primary care physician and, and your response to that and, and thinking about what other physicians and clinicians and healthcare professionals are going through and recognizing that we're caught in this, as you mentioned, the Groundhog Day phenomenon. We're in this current system that's resulted from a cultural malaise that has been formed after years of people being conditioned by the current model you reference like fish swimming in a, a dirty, ecologically contaminated environment. The water just needs to be changed, right? You mentioned this, what I call a rallying point that we should consider in our healthcare system, these 200 to 400,000 avoidable deaths each year, which is really comparable for people who haven't heard this statistic before. It's comparable to having two or three jumbo jets crashing every single day in the country, which is just ridiculous and unheard of. We wouldn't accept that. Most healthcare professionals, I think, recognize the challenges and recognize the, the state that we're in, but they've become desensitized to the consequences of the flawed model 
of delivering care. I want to think about what, how you ended your response to Eric's question of, and talk about what is the solution. And one of the things you mentioned in your book that I really love, and, and in addition, when you speak to leaders across the industry on your podcast, you talk about courageous leadership and you don't constrain that solutioning to just the C-suite. You talk about that each and every person in the system bears responsibility for other people's lives. And each person in the system has a role to play in imagining or reimagining the future of healthcare, really a grassroots transformation that includes an empowered workforce. So as we think about this transition to value, there's this great opportunity for a more dispersed model of leadership to all members of the interdisciplinary team that can create empowerment. So can you provide your perspective on the value movement and how it supports or gives us an opportunity to support a culture of safety and improve patient outcomes. I mean, we're talking about removing the authority gradient, which has been all too pervasive in the broken system. Will the frontline workforce in healthcare be in a better position to drive quality improvement and transformation at the ground level? And finally, where do we need to go as a system to cultivate that culture that is more sensitive to detecting, mitigating, and preventing patient harm? So first of all, like you were saying, I mean, and I'm thinking as you were talking about uh, courageous people, so many people I know come to mind, people I work with, and the vast, vast majority of them are not C-suite people. They include those folks, but I had a colleague who left one job to go to another one that paid less, but it was more aligned with her sense of what we need to do in healthcare. And it was in fact aligned with value-based payment as opposed to fee-for-service. I just spent uh, some time speaking to a group of people who are forming a new company and they left uh, high-paying, secure jobs to come work in a startup to do something which was essentially to reinstill humanism and communication and collaboration and relationship into healthcare. And I'm just, I'm listening to these people and I'm just like, Oh my God, I, how do you do that? How do you have that courage? And, and this is all over the place. I, I think to be fair, I, again, I think everyone who goes into the hospital or goes into clinic every day, there's a certain amount of courage that takes, and especially if you know the system isn't what it should be to go in and know you're going to fight the system to do your best job. It's just, I, again, I, the people are not the problem in healthcare. The system is in fact, what we learned in the pandemic was exactly that. I mean, if, if there, were, there were two or three top lessons to learn from this pandemic, we learned the system sucks. And anyone who, there is no one I know who disagrees with that, which boggles my mind, because if that's the case, then why aren't we doing something more aggressive about that and, and faster at accelerated rate? But putting that aside, because that is a question that comes to my mind every single day, but we learned the system sucks, but we also learned that the people in the system are amazing. So I just wanted to underscore that. Your point about value-based care, I would say this goes so far as to say this. In fact, I'm trying to write a book right now, the second book. And you know, one of the major points I think I'm going to try to make, even much, much more than in the first book, uh, in fact, much, much more, is that if there is an evil in healthcare, and I don't really believe in evil per se, but if there is, um, it's the fee-for-service payment model. There is no single thing in healthcare that has destroyed healthcare more than our fee-for-service payment model. It's a literally decimated primary care. The whole quality and safety movement, it is a strong antagonist to that as well. And we could talk about it more, but believe me, I've, I've asked this question of chief medical officers of large healthcare systems around the country. In fact, I'm thinking of one interview I did just a few weeks ago with uh, the chief medical officer of one of the most prestigious advanced healthcare systems in, in the country, if not the world. And he said to me, Zev, this isn't a theoretical issue. This isn't a policy issue. This isn't a political issue. This is a day-to-day -day issue. When you put a doctor and their team in a clinic and every day they walk in and they're being paid piecemeal and in order to keep the clinic afloat and to keep their financials going well, this isn't about getting rich. This is about just, you know, getting by financially in order to do that, not to lose money, they have to churn through patients. And it, when that becomes the major imperative and the major KPI, key performance indicator, and that becomes what, you, what you're all about, then you either have to quit and leave and do something else or find some other place to do it, or you have to learn how to live with it and conform to it. And he said, that's just, you know, after spending years and years 
getting to that place. And believe me, I've talked to so many doctors who find themselves in this place. And then to realize this is not what I signed up for. I really wanted to spend time with patients. I wanted to talk to patients. I wanted to learn about them as people. I didn't want to check boxes on an electronic medical record system so that we can bill appropriately. And the fee-for-service model just doesn't allow for that. You have to really fight hard. And believe me, I know there are people across the country who are trying to figure out how to make the system work within that model, but it can't. Now, there are parts of healthcare that I believe can be paid for by fee-for-service, so it's not a blanket statement, but so much of healthcare has to be converted to a model of care where you get paid for outcomes, not for the things you do, not for visits. And essentially, I don't recall if I wrote this in the book, but essentially we've turned physicians, I mean, which is just so, so sad. Talk about denuding the meaning of medicine. We turn physicians into visit vendors. That's essentially what they are because they get paid by their visit. They get paid by the RVU per visit or per procedure. And as opposed to saying, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to get a certain amount of money, whether it's per member per month or per employee per month or per patient per month or per person per month. I'm going to get paid to take care of you, to keep you healthy and safe, to keep you out of the emergency rooms and out of hospitals, to keep you uh, as much as I can off medicines. And if you need medicines, make them appropriate so you are optimally healthy and optimally able to live your life. So you do the right thing and it ends up overall total cost of care lower. So you're not on the level of the system. You're not bankrupting the system, which of course is happening as a result of fee-for-service as well. And so it's the right thing to change that payment model. And so again, there's a root, root cause. That's it. And again, this is not me saying this. This is literally every expert I have talked to for the last four or five years and interviewed saying the same thing over and over and over again. And it's just mind boggling to me that we we continue to drag our feet in this shift from fee-for-service to value-based payment. And again, I, I get the arguments. Believe me, there have been many systems that have tried to do this ahead of the game and they've just gotten way over their skis and they failed. And that's why this is a a systemic thing that requires different form of leadership. And it's going to require courage that I'm just looking for. You know, I see it around here, but I'm looking for more of that collective courage. I wonder why don't CEOs of hospital systems get together and collectively say, we are going to make this big change? Why don't they link arms with the CEOs of payers? You know, and again, I know that that's going to sound grossly naive to some people listening to this because a lot of people make a lot of money in the current system and there's a lot to be lost from a lot of stakeholders. I get that. I'm not naive to to some of the monetary influence on all sides, but it's still a question. I'm just asking the question. If we know we need to change and if we know that this is you know, destroying, I mean, people talk about burnout. Change the payment model and we will make a big, big dent in terms of burnout. We will put meaning back into medicine. We will allow physicians to do, and the doctors I talk to and the nurses I talk to and the PAs I talk to, they all want this. They want to practice medicine in a humanistic way. And I think that the a payment model more than any other change will enable that. You know, we talk about Medicare for all or, or healthcare for all and access for all. I think that's great. But if we do that and we keep the fee-for-service payment model in place, we will bankrupt the system at an accelerated pace. And I'm not sure that will actually improve care because just having the insurance to get access to care doesn't mean you're going to get good care or the care you need or preventive care. Um, you're still going to get that fee-for-service churn and burn care. And so, you know, my question to the leaders, why aren't we reframing? I'm talking about reframing leadership. And again, that might be a book down the road, but we're not going to be able to achieve this with the same sort of leadership structure and mindset and framework that we currently have. We need a different type of leadership. I've talked to some great, great hospital leaders across the country and listened to them. And I think they're saying this, actually. In fact, I know they're saying this, that we need a different type of leadership. And it's not about the individual. It's about a collective leadership and forming it together. And it's a multidisciplinary leadership and it's a, it's a diverse leadership and it's an inclusive leadership and it's a leadership that is reframing. And so, and that's why, again, will these spot solutions, will these shiny objects like data and, and digital and AI, will they help? Yes. Will they actually solve the problem? Absolutely not. You need to reframe healthcare and the tools and technology will enable you to do that. Well, Zev, I couldn't agree more with your views on the systemically flawed and broken healthcare system. And 
it creates harm to patients and it's ruinous to our our nation and it's by nature of design not intention you were very clear and and i think we all understand that we're all actors in a in a very broken system and the healthcare system it seems like it continues to fail to an astounding degree, you can just look in society, you know, just look at the rampant manifestation of chronic disease. I mean, that's a failure of the health system. Or you look at healthcare as the number one cause for personal bankruptcy in our country. And in your book, you mentioned that of those bankruptcies, 70% of those individuals actually had health insurance. And then we have this flawed design of our fee-for-service model that creates this insatiable appetite for profit which leads to undue influence, peddling, and perverse incentives, and it really creates these structural distortions in how we deliver care to those most in need. And this corporatized healthcare system, it reminds me a lot of what President Eisenhower described 60 years ago when he discussed the concept of the military-industrial complex, which created this potential for a disastrous rise of misplaced power that exists when you have incentives to expand the military to sustain industries that are involved in the production of armaments. That's exactly what we have in healthcare. And you've been very vocal about how the current system is not built around its customers. It's really built around itself and its own needs. In your leadership, you, you postulate that we really do need to shift from this medical mindset of healthcare delivery to this marketing mindset. And Zev, I wanted to ask you if you could describe for our listeners, what do you mean by the marketing mindset and how does that relate to patient-centered care delivery? And ultimately, how do we move healthcare away from this supply-side orientation to more of a demand-side orientation and really create the, the segmentation to provide more personalized, humanistic healthcare? Yeah, so the, the marketing mindset, and these are, these are just, I would say, tools to help us reframe healthcare. But when I started to listen to folks who were reframing, and I'd be happy to share you know, some examples, because I think that's where we can learn to see who's changing, who's really making transformational change and what they're doing. And can we, can we copy them and expand and scale even more than that? Uh, can we collectively do more together if we think that way? So I'd be, I'd be happy and delighted to, to even give some examples of, of people who really have, have and are reframing healthcare and organizations. As I start to listen to these folks, I started to see sort of patterns in thinking and patterns in action. And one of the patterns was this sort of different mindset. And I had to be just really honest about it intellectually. I, I had been thinking about this for some time. I'd been, I'd taken a master's program, master's in healthcare management at the Harvard School of Public Health from 2003 to 2005, and actually then ended up teaching there a few years later. But the course I, I, that really, really shocked me, I was sitting in you know this MBA style auditorium and the marketing professor was speaking and lots of years of experience out in the real world and a great teacher as well. And then I wrote about her in the book. She started talking about the marketing and I didn't know anything about marketing prior to this. And I've spent a lot of time actually listening to marketers and reading marketing books. So I've gotten a little bit more educated in it, but I'm not a marketing professional by any means. But the essence of marketing is not about sales or advertising or PR. The essence of marketing really is about understanding your customer, understanding, in fact, who your customer is, understanding their problem, right? To really understand their mindset, their life, the context of their problem, what problem they have, understand the solution for that problem, and then making sure that the solution you deliver actually addresses that problem, what might be called post-marketing. And so those three or so steps are the fundamental essence. And then all the ideas and, and approaches and sophisticated techniques, and of course the, the sophisticated technologies that have been built up over decades, all of that is built on some very, very fundamental principles. And that's what I call the marketing mindset. And when you look at that marketing mindset, to me, as I sat in, in, in the early days of this marketing 101 course, and I was like, oh my God, this is so aligned with the professionalism of medicine. This is what I taught medical residents for years. I taught internal medicine residents for 10 years or more. And as they're attending physician, I would say to them, listen, 
Your job is to really understand the patient, that person in front of you. Every person's different. They have a different context and you really have to understand the problem as they see it. And then we need you because as opposed to just opening up a textbook, because you have to actually take all the learning, all that knowledge, um, whether you need to look it up now or whether it's a computer enabled, it doesn't matter. All that knowledge you've got to actually bring to bear your personal relationship, your personal contextual understanding of that other person who's sitting in front of you or standing in front of you or lying in front of you in a hospital bed or an exam room. You have to understand that and customize a solution for them. And again, there's some science behind this. So for example, we know that certain blood pressure medications work in certain people better than others, right? So you're not going to necessarily give the same blood pressure medication to different people. And so you have to customize it and phase it and adapt it to that person. Again, all these words, by the way, are marketing words, right? And then you have to make sure that it actually works. And that's your post-marketing. And it's not enough, doctor, for you to write the script and tear it off the sheet. And of course, now it's electronic and then hand it to the patient and expect that they're going to do it. Your job is to really connect the solution to the problem, to the person. Every other industry understands this, lives and dies by this, except for healthcare. And so I just thought it's so closely aligned, this marketing mindset. And again, it's not about selling things. It's not about manipulating. It's really about understanding who's in front of you, what their problem is, customizing a solution for them and making sure that it actually works. And so much of it is about relationship. The best marketing people are relationally gifted, relational gurus, and they're, they're psychological gurus. And it really is understanding the person. Anyway, so the marketing mindset became a fundamental principle. Another one, which also comes from marketing, actually. And when I started to talk about this and talk about patients as customers years ago to audiences of providers and physicians and administrators, uh, wasn't particularly receptive, but it is what it is. And, and now I'm seeing much, much more of that. I'm starting to see hospital CEOs talk about their patients as, as clients and customers, beginning to, to see them talk the language of marketing mindset. And, and another principle, which is so, so fundamental, which I saw, uh, and again, I'm not making these things up, I, this is all empirics, I saw folks doing that were really transforming healthcare with segmentation. Again, another basic marketing mindset principle. And, you know, in healthcare, we just kind of do it to everyone all the same. So you're, you're trying to be everything for everyone, everywhere, all the time. And we know that doesn't work. And so you, you have to actually segment who you're trying to reach because you, it's really, really hard, if not impossible, to customize the solutions uh, to everyone. And so you begin to segment. And, and by the way, we have precedent in healthcare in this, right? We see that uh, no longer is it just the general surgeon. I, I don't even know how many different surgical segmentations there are, but you know, I just had surgery on a joint and I didn't want a general surgeon doing that. I didn't want a neurosurgeon doing that. I didn't want a lung surgeon doing that or a, a gastrointestinal surgeon doing that. I wanted a, a bone surgeon, an orthopedist doing that. You know, that's a segmentation. We see it in healthcare and specialty. So we have precedent for segmentation, but yet in something like primary care, you know, we treat everyone the same. And I will say this, and this has been something I've been working on in my day job. I really believe we need to get very, very serious. And it may be another reason why primary care has been decimated. You can't be everything for everyone everywhere all the time. You have to say people are different and let's customize solutions to them. It doesn't work if you don't. In fact, it doesn't even work on a business model level. It's unsustainable. You cannot be taking care of 18-year-olds and 85-year-olds with the same team and the same set of resources and the same skills. You can't. You need different sets of people that are trained different, that have different personalities. You need different questionnaires, different tools. You need different resources. And trying to do both at the same time in the same place with the same people is, to my mind, and I'll just say it, ludicrous. So the notion of segmentation, and again, I learned this by literally hundreds and hundreds of in-depth interviews that I was doing with people who were transforming healthcare. And then finally, I'll just say that, you know, all of this I put together in a roadmap called the reframe roadmap. And again, I'm not even saying that the roadmap is exactly right, or if it's in the right order, because in fact, I'm, I'm beginning to see that it, it, it can be reordered. But there were steps people were taking, they, they were coming into this with a very, very different orientation um, that, it, that did actually include the marketing mindset, they were in that orientation they were redefining the problem, which was such a, such a core step is, is redefining the problem you're trying to solve because you see the world differently. You see the problem differently. You see consumers differently. And then they were creating a new value proposition out of that. That's what I call rebranding. And then they were redesigning because you have to then 
then take that conceptually into redesigning and then you get your different results. And what I call the final act or the final, I actually call it the final act of the reframe roadmap. There's three acts. The final act is the one that most people get stuck at. Most organizations get stuck at, which is you actually have to reorganize. And if you don't reorganize, you won't be able to adapt the new redesign. And then the final, final step, this is where the, the rocket ship really gets launched. You put the fuel in it is uh, you have to redirect your, your tactics and most, most importantly, your resources. And so you could do all the steps up to that, but if you don't put your money where your mouth is, you don't put that fuel in the tank, the rocket ship ain't going anywhere. And so those were the fundamental steps embedded in that is in fact, the marketing mindset, what now people call consumer obsession, which would be another way of labeling the marketing mindset. Zev, thanks for laying that out. I really, I really enjoyed that and appreciate that overview. And I want to continue talking about something you touched on toward the end here, which is the importance of rebranding primary care. And we know that primary care is so foundational to a functional healthcare system, and it touches on core issues in society, such as relational trust, deep empathy, community building, survival, and thriving. And as we think about how critically important it is to align payment and compensation, like we've been talking about, with the type of provider behaviors and performance that we'd like to see, your suggestion that a segmented, rebranded primary care ecosystem is really a perfect model for disruptive innovation to transform care delivery and enhance patient outcomes. In your book, Reframing Healthcare, you talk about how it makes sense to begin the healthcare rebranding process with primary care, and you list a number of reasons for that. First, it's unlikely that we'll create great health outcomes and deliver accessible, affordable, and coordinated care without a solid primary care foundation. And second, Primary care is one of the most fundamentally flawed parts of the system. And if it remains flawed, the rest of the delivery system is set up for failure. So Zev, if we're to approach primary care transformation with a marketing mindset, how should we approach the rebranding of it into a hyper-segmented primary care ecosystem? And, and I'd love to hear, you've referenced a couple of times in our conversation so far, some of the present day examples that you've seen in primary care, those bright spots that are leading innovators in the complex chronic care brand. So the first, and folks have, when I've gone and presented or talked to boards, people have asked, you know, a question like, where would you start with primary care? And I think I would start where, quite honestly, where I saw others starting and where I think there's, you know, sort of in some sense, low hanging fruit or the greatest opportunity for really making a big difference and a big difference to, to people, individuals, you know, patients, if you will, their families, making a big difference uh, for providers in terms of making it the practice uh, easy and doable, and also for saving a lot of money and doing it by practicing preventive care. And so where I would start is probably in, and here now I'm giving trade secrets away, but I would, I would say that I would start with either two things and they're kind of overlapping, but I would say sort of complex chronic care. The thing, and I, I practiced again internal medicine for many, many years, and you're going along, most of the patients you see are either well or maybe mild chronic disease or, or moderate chronic disease in terms of complexity, but there are maybe 5% and depends on your practice. If you've got an older practice, it could be, you know, somewhere between five and 10%. If you've got a really young practice, it may be less than 5%, but a small percentage of patients that are really, really complicated, really sick, and they can be psychosocial as well. Uh, so there are complexities around that, whether it's behavioral, substance abuse issues, that's a different spectrum on, on the complexity spectrum from, let's say, slightly older folks who are, maybe they have six, eight different medical problems. They could have had a stroke, have moderate to severe heart failure, be incapacitated, you know, have high blood pressure, diabetes, hypercholesterolemia. So carrying literally five or six or seven major problems and other associated problems. And then of course, depression is so rampant with uh, other chronic conditions as a comorbidity. And they could be literally on 12 to 25 medications. And then on top of the, that, you add their infirmity and if they're getting older, now we know uh, increasingly we understand this better in terms of seniors, how prevalent uh, cognitive decline is. And now you're adding their home situation and life situation and activities, daily living. And so literally I, I can freshly remember seeing patients uh, like that who had so much going on, so much complexity of disease that you have your 20 minute visits or 15 minute visits or whatever they are. And even if you, you know, slotted two of those visits for them, it took 10 minutes just to get them in the room in terms of just speaking to them and 
you know, is their caregiver or family member in the room? Which one? How much do they know? What is actually happening at home? What's going on with their medications? All the consultations and other referrals that they've been involved in, they were just in the ICU. Maybe they don't even speak English and you don't speak uh, the language they're speaking. And so I vividly remember these patients, you know, whether it's 1% of your patients that you see or, or, or 10%, but literally could take up half a day. And by the way, I didn't have the staffing or resources to do this work. And so I didn't do a good job and it's hard to do a good job. And then you're spending time even after that. And then the rest of your day, you're behind now four or five, six patients. It makes no sense. And I personified, uh, you know, a problem I could have just named, but just wanted to give it some illustrative flavor and understanding of what we're talking about here. By the way, the alternative to what I just painted was that patient comes in and what you do is you take care of one of their 20 problems. And then you say, I'll see you back in two or three weeks, which is unfortunately a lot of doctors, that is their only option is to say, I can't do this. I can't provide the comprehensive preventive proactive care you need. I'm going to, what is, what is your most worst problem? And again, you can get away with that with other people in these folks. What happens is, and we know this, they'll end up back in the emergency room. They'll end up falling. Something catastrophic will happen. They end up in the hospital, a repeated readmissions. They'll end up in nursing homes. And so the cost of care absolutely balloons. Why? Because you didn't have the appropriate primary care segmentation in place. And so what I saw in, in real life happening was that these complex chronic care clinics, the senior care clinics were popping up and, and they were focusing on value-based payment because that was the way you can actually make a living seeing these patients because otherwise you, you're not going to get reimbursed for the, the level of care you actually need. And I saw these clinics and they're the, the you know, Iora Healths of the world and the Chen Meds of the world and the Oak Street Healths of the world and, and on and on and on. And, and it was in fact the Chen Med and Iora Health were the first two that I came upon and they were just absolutely brilliant. They both, the leadership of both of these realized that you can't be everything for everyone everywhere all the time, that seniors and particularly complex chronic conditions needed a different doctor. They needed a doctor who was totally into that, who really, really just loved doing that work, who had the skill for that work. You surround that doctor with the right team and the right resources, even a special electronic medical record just for that type of patient. Now, now that's the marketing mindset. That's customization. That's patient-centered care. And you know, you have the right team. You have maybe a rehab facility in there. You have specialists rotating through the office to support the primary care doctor and their team. You have pharmacy easily available. You have you, you recognizing the social determinants of health. You have health coaches. So it's, it's not just the medical problems. You realize that most of the problems are psychosocial uh, activities of daily living, caregiver, things like that. So you really build a, a clinic that's able to identify those issues, do something about them. You're able to do home visits. You're able to bring patients in to do social visits um, so that they're not lonely and isolated, which we now know is an epidemic disease, particularly in the older population. So this is the reframe roadmap, right? This is the reorientation, identifying the problem to be solved in a different way, rebranding, right? This is a totally different brand of primary care. It looks nothing like, by the way, these doctors and teams maybe have 400, 500 patients apiece, maybe 600, not 2,000 patients because you can't take care of, of that many of people who are this sick. And so, you know, you've, you've rebranded, you've redesigned the whole thing, you're getting different results. And you're, by the way, you're creating different results, even things like loneliness, becomes a metric you look at and social isolation and things like that. And then you have to, of course, reorganize and you are absolutely redirecting your strategies, tactics, and most importantly, your resources. Boom. That is what I observed over and over and over again. So in primary care, that would be the, for me, the first thing to go after is that segment of the complex chronic, whether it be older people, which again, you, you could actually even argue with me that maybe you need to actually sub-segment and just do the older folks because there are specific issues that are different than younger folks. And so maybe complex chronic in, in 30 or 40 or 50 year olds is a slightly different thing. I, I'm not going to argue that finer point, but now we're in a discussion of the marketing mindset in terms of how do you segment care? How do you rebrand it? And that is my whole point. But th those are some examples of what I saw. Well, Zev, you've talked a great deal about how healthcare organizations must uh, approach care delivery from this consumer-only perspective, and it requires, as you described earlier, a different type of leadership. We have to lead differently than we do in the world of fee-for-service, and leaders in this reframed model of healthcare, they have to have a redefined sense, I think, of who their competition is, and they have to think beyond 
the health system across town and they have to start comparing their organizations to exemplars and customer service you know, like Disney or Apple and other companies that are in different industries, it really requires the realization, I think, that patients ultimately judge their healthcare experience by how they're treated as a human, not by how they're treated for their disease. And I think a lot of the groups that you mentioned that are kind of leading the way and kind of this reframed primary care is a perfect example of that. In your book, I was really interested, and you mentioned the chief consumer officer of Intermountain Health, uh, Kevin Mabbitt, who previously worked as a head of global consumer insights for Disney. And, you know, he knows how Disney runs its theme parks, and he's really took his role with Intermountain over the last few years and created an enhanced understanding of how they can better understand and deploy consumerism within their healthcare model. And I thought that would be a good focal point for us to advance our conversation a little bit is really talking about some of the the new skill sets and this kind of reframed model of healthcare. I mean, what would it take to create this healthcare system that could demonstrate vastly higher net promoter scores, like what we see in other industries like hotels and lodging and banking and retail and consumer electronics. I mean, healthcare, I think is in the like nine or something as an average. And, you know, there's other industries that that, uh, treat their customers so much better and have a better experience. And what are you thinking in terms of how we can get there? Yeah. So Kevin Mabbitt is uh, just amazing. And uh, I, I literally could could remember every single conversation I've had with them because they're just so awe-inspiring. I do want to maybe actually explain or respond to that by giving you another story, though. And, I, and I've talked about Kevin and I've written about him and, and, and hopefully we'll be speaking to him again sometime soon and, and sharing that interview. But I think a, a great example of that, a different one, and, and I share this because it's, it isn't just the intermountains of the world. There are so many others across the country. And I think these you know, chief experience officers, I was just talking to the chief experience officer at, at Jefferson and just so, again, so inspiring, so brilliant, wants to do things differently. And is interested in reframing. But I interviewed someone recently, it's in my podcast, and his name is Nick Archer. And I think he's, again, part of a system and part of a C-suite uh, that really gets this. And so about three years ago, the CEO and C-suite of Advent Health in Florida launched a Skunk Works. They basically, they said, we're going to take a group of people completely offline, our best and our brightest. We're going to put them in a bunker somewhere. And we're going to ask them to really focus on the patient as a customer and consumer and really create a different experience. And their job is not to improve. And this this was so intentional. In fact, it was a secret team that actually was designed to kill the old healthcare model. So I, I was so taken with this notion that they were actually out to disrupt their own system. And they knew that the only way they could do this was give bright people the room, the resources, the authority to do that because otherwise they would be quashed in the mothership. And again, run still a spectacular healthcare system day in and day out, improving, doing great, great things. But they took this one team took them offline. You literally couldn't get in touch with them. Super, super bright. They were allowed to hire people, like you were saying, from Disney, from hotel industry, from other industries, hire innovators, human-centered design experts, designers. And they started to look at healthcare and they were trying to look at it differently. And uh, Nick Archer, who was actually a finance person, was the, was the lead of this new, what they call the Fulcrum Project. And again, you can you could look it up on the podcast and, and I hope to, to write about this and put this in the book. But I remember talking to him and he said, literally, we set out to disrupt our own business model with a consumer-driven innovative model. So there you go, the marketing mindset writ large explicit and they put their money where their mouth is. I don't know how many millions and millions of dollars they spent on this over the last three years, but they said, you guys go incubate something new and different and bring it back to us so we can bring it in. So I was talking to him and I said, so here you are, you guys have all these resources, the CEO, the board, the C-suite blesses it, gives you people, lets you hire new people. And what did you come up with? And he said, we came up with a care advocate. And I said, well, what's a care advocate? He said, well, we basically have people now who answer phones um, and we're doing this starting with a certain subset of the population. Actually, as it turns out, of course, an older subset of the population that actually really needs a lot of health care, really needs answers, really needs navigation through the healthcare system. And so we're focused on those people first, but we we hired hundreds and hundreds of these care advocates and tons of these care advocates. We we trained them up. We've, we've got a, a way that they answer questions and that's what we put into place. And so here I am listening to him say that and I'm like, okay, so 
you created essentially a, a phone-based care navigator. This is after three years. What, you know, and I'm thinking to myself, where's the, where's the space age rocket science stuff you were going to come up with? And he said to me, Zev, I, I kind of, we get that a lot. I appreciate the question, but he said, you know, what we realized, and he said, some of the stuff sounds so simple, but you all don't get it in healthcare, right? He said, in the end, we discovered because we actually went out and did the hard work of actually listening to people and observing them. And we found out that our healthcare customers want to, especially these, these older folks, want to and need to talk with people who are in healthcare. What a mind-boggling phenomena. They don't want chatbots. They don't want, they're frustrated with the system as it is. They want less frustration. They just want to be able to talk to someone. And so the idea of actually having a, your own, and by the way, they actually assign these care advocates to people. So if I called back, I could get the same person. And if they weren't available, I would say I get someone else, but they, they've got an electronic record of, of the conversations. So he said that was, first of all, number one, they want to, to talk to people. Number two, he said, we realized that what we consider high, you know, you talk about chronic conditions, he said to me, and you're going to name some chronic conditions. And he said, I'm sure if I asked you, you would say diabetes and hypertension and things like that. And he said, that's not what people think about. And I said, well, what do people think about? He said, their definition of high impact is things like stomach aches and uh, constipation and depression. He said, it's the day-to-day -day stuff, headaches not being able to sleep. He said, when we talked to people, that was the big thing in their life, not the clinical stuff. They wanted help with, and even just navigating the system, they wanted help with basic, basic everyday things that they feel that get in the way of them living lives, their life the way they want to. So that was number two. And he said, number three, what we discovered is we redefined empathy. And again, talk about the reframe roadmap. We don't see empathy the way you see it. By you, he meant everyone else in healthcare. You know, it's not about being nice and sympathetic and all that sort of stuff. We found that people wanted empathy. They, they didn't want us to do things to them. They wanted us to do things with them. And there's a big, big fundamental difference. And he said, those were three fundamental things we learned. And given that we formed this care advocate role, we have a, a very, very specific training program. We hire people specifically who can understand this form of empathy, who understand how to deal with these high impact chronic conditions that patients are coming to us that are not medicalizing people and who want to talk and listen to people. And so that's what they set up. And of course, their results, their early results seemed really remarkable. In fact, what was fascinating was that what they were finding is that as opposed to keeping people away from doctors, and you all alluded to this in our previous conversation about the importance of primary care, what they found was a 30% decrease in the no-show rate. So more people were actually keeping their appointments as a result of talking to these care advocates. There were many, many more virtual visits. In fact, there were many more in-person, like one and a half, 150% increase in in-person face-to-face clinic visits as a result of, of doing this. So they were really, really excited about their results. And again, it's an example of what you were asking about this new marketing mindset, this new sense of consumerism. People say, I, in fact, I'll end with this, this story. I was talking to an executive at a large national retailer that if I said the name, everyone knows it. Everyone's shopped there. I forget how many hundreds of millions of customer visits they have a year. It's just mind blowing. But one of the largest, best brands in the country. And he said to me, we were having in-depth conversations and he said, you know, you all, you hospital systems, you, you talk about customer obsession and customer centric care. And you throw that word around. He said, let me tell you something. We can tell what you're going to buy next Christmas. Now that's customer obsession boom, drop the mic, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I get a chill every time I remember what he said to me. We are a far, far away from that. And again, yes, do they have the, the analytics to, to know that? Of course they do, but that's because they've invested in those analytics because it's important to them. And again, I'm not blaming and I'm not finger pointing. I'm just pointing out if we want to talk about what we want to be, which is consumer-centric, we better take a lesson from Nicholas Archer and the CEO and the board at Advent and see what they've done and see the commitment they've made. They put their money where their mouth is and they're really, they're, they're not making it incrementally better. They're fundamentally trying to disrupt the system and make it what it should be. So anyway, I, I hope that sort of illustrates what you were asking about. Seb, I just want to say yeah, thank you so much. You've given us a lot to digest and given us a, a real vision for what we should be doing to become more consumer centric and have a 
a consumer focused approach to delivering healthcare and making the system better. Can't thank you enough for your time with us today. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you both. Before we sign off, we'd love to give you the opportunity to let our listeners know where they can find you and, and learn more about your work and follow your podcast as well and read your book. Thank you. The book is called Reframing Healthcare. It's on Amazon and it's both hard copy and audible. And I do have a podcast called Creating a New Healthcare and it's it's pretty easy to find if you, you know, Google it, you'll you'll see it's on multiple channels, Creating a New Healthcare. You, you could even type my name in to the podcast uh, icon on your phone and, and it'll pop up creating new healthcare. And again, I, I am so excited about being part of this community across the country and across the world that is really about changing and transforming healthcare and humanizing healthcare. So if folks want to reach me, my email address is znewirth at gmail.com. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Dr. Zev Newirth, thank you so much for joining us this week in the Race to Value. Thank you. 